What does it mean to be a radical? Well, Karl Marx has something to say about what it means. He says this, to be radical is to go to the root of the matter. Now, honestly, I wasn't expecting that. So rather than go to the edges or go to the extremes, it means getting to the heart of it. And then Marx continues, but for man, however, the root is man himself. So radical compassion, radical empathy, radical generosity, radical leadership, radical humanity. Perhaps it's time to be a radical. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that's moved them, a book that shaped them. Pascal Finette is a founder of a boutique advisory firm, Be Radical, and he's the posse leader, so-called, at The Heretic, one of my favorite, very opinionated newsletters. Now, Pascal has spent about three decades in the tech space, but he didn't get his start here in North America. I grew up in Germany, um, grew up in the tech, the first tech boom, if you know some of your listeners remember the good old 90s. Ah, yes, the 90s. Well, I was in the UK for most of that, falling in love with Marcella, trying to understand James Joyce at Oxford University, and actually being in the very first years of my career, running focus groups to find out more about soup. Not as glamorous as it sounds. Meantime, Pascal had joined what would become known as eBay Germany and really helped to build that company across Europe. And then it was Mozilla that brought him to the US, where he continued his work with companies like Google. So indeed, Pascal has worn many hats. The short version is that uh, I probably have a very short attention span and I get bored really quickly. And I always do the thing which I feel like gives me the biggest learning opportunity and then you know kind of rather intuitively jump from the one thing to the next and that is really my life in a nutshell now i get that because i enjoy the challenge and excitement of a new learning opportunity myself i mean i feel restless if i get a bit stuck in a groove i suspect i write books when i find a new topic that i want to excavate and dig so i asked pascal what it was like for him to be a learner and I really love the selflessness of the second part of what he said. Uh, for me, it's interest and heat. You know, when I get something, when I see something where I get really curious about it, when I'm like, wow, this could be something interesting. Um, it has a, a positive impact on us as people, society, the planet. Um, and I really feel like I, I want to learn more about it. I want to understand it better. I want to be part of it. And also the people who are in it, the other thing for me is really important is like, you know, you, ha- you are who the people are who surround you, right? Mm. And so I always look for who, what are interesting people doing and, you know, what right. could I learn from them? And, you know, you heard this adage a million times, but I really mean it. It's this idea that I love being the dumbest person in the room because mm-hmm. if I'm in a room full of brilliant people, I just learn an insane amount, right? right, right. And I'm not shy and this is probably the heretical part in me <laughs> i'm not shy asking questions i'm not shy yeah. saying i don't understand this explain this to me right so the the heretic is um is it an, it's the name of your newsletter is that right mm-hmm. yeah which i subscribe to and i enjoy uh, who who was the first heretic in your life <laughs> oh my god that's a really good question um I, you know outside of the obvious ones like as in like my dad and my my mom 
who clearly shaped me. Mm. I think in my professional life, I had this incredible opportunity uh, to, while I was studying at the University of Cologne, uh, I wanted to make some money. And so I joined and I was like, I was a computer geek. You know, I grew mm. up on home computers. You might remember like Commodore 64 oh, and like yeah. all that stuff. Uh, so I, um, uh, my dad bought one of the very first Macintosh, Apple Macintosh computers, which was brought to Germany in 1985. Right. And, uh, you know, I grew up on the Apple in the Apple ecosystem and decided to work for an Apple retailer. Mm. And the story goes that um, this is the largest Apple retailer across Europe, a company called Gravis. They had stores all over the country, and I worked in a store. I sold computers, and accidentally, I find myself on a call. Gravis at the time brought out a um, they had a catalog, and on this catalog was a, a CD uh, with uh, you know software on it. And it was like unheard of, like nobody has ever done that before. <laughs> and, you know, they came out with the first edition. I was like, this is great. And like, you know, it's a really cool thing that we're doing this. And then the second edition came out with a CD, which had the exact same content as the last CD. Right. And I find myself on a call with the marketing team and the CEO, the founder of the company. And I can't help it. I think that's the other heretical part I have in <laughs> me, which is I can't help just say the things. Right. I think, right. you know, like I have a weird little like no filter. <laughs> so on this call, I blurred out like, yeah, you know, like I love the CD, but quite frankly, like it's the same as the last one and it's stupid and we shouldn't do this. And the CEO of the company, a gentleman called Archibald Hollitz, comes on mic and says, uh, Mr. Finette, do you know who made the CD? And I'm like, I don't know, but like you should really tell him to like you know, sp spend a little bit more time on it. Right. And then <laughs> total silence, as you can imagine, the next yeah. answer is... I made the CD. Exactly. I saw that right. where and I was going. Yeah. Awkward to moment. His question, and this is like to your point about like the first heretic in my life. Mm. And I learned so much from him. He said, and now you're going to make the CD. Right. Right. Instead of like being offended or like yeah. defending himself or, you know, coming up with whatever reason or saying, fire this guy. Who is this? Right. Yeah. He's like, no, you do it. And nice. I learned so much, you know, like later I got to work with him very closely and I learned just so much from him and uh, truly my first heretic in my life. <laughs> That's a great story. Pascal, how do you keep the heretical nature alive? Because mm. for most of us, as we get older, like you and I are probably about the same age, because I remember Commodore 64s and the first Mac. So, um, you know, and as you hit us, if you hit mid midlife and you've had success like you've had and like I've had as well, um, you know, like it's it's less interesting to disrupt things because you're pretty comfortable. <laughs> you, you've got status, and you may have resources, whether it's money or time or whatever else. What keeps the heretical flame alive for you? I just have a disdain for people and situations where we make stuff overly complex, mm. where you have people talking using. And you know, this is probably the benefit I have. For me, English is a second language. Yeah. Right? So my first language is German. And I think I'm in a decent command of the language, but still, if I hear people, you know, like people, I hear very often people using words where I know the word, but quite <laughs> frankly, the stringing together of the words makes no sense to me. Yeah. And this makes me angry right. because I'm like, what are you trying to tell me? Like, what is it you're actually asking here mm. or telling me? Yeah. And you know, like that that inner fire, this inner like disdain for these things. Mm. Also, like being just walking through life and just I, I still get annoyed when stuff doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. You know, or I think it's supposed to work. Yeah. Um, 
So I don't know. I never lost that that desire, regardless how you know arguably comfortable my life is now. Sure. The other, the other question I've got, because I know part of what you think about and also how you support other people in the world is is change and how do you make change happen? What's changed in your understanding of how individuals change? How's that shifted over the years? I believe I probably started with the wrong assumption that you know if you just put yourself out there if you're just energetic enough like they will see the light they will see the thing you can see and just follow you blindly yeah which you know reality is most people don't like to change mm. and for good reasons because quite frankly i don't like to change at the end right. of the day and right. i think what i learned is that if you really want to get to change, it's this really intricate balancing act, this dance between showing someone the promised land, like making mm. them see it, but they need to see it for themselves. Right. Also making them just uncomfortable enough in their skin that they actually feel not only the desire to change, but also the necessity to change. Right. And then most importantly, and I think that's the role, you know, like people like you and I have, is to give them the tools to actually be able to change. Mm, nice. Right. So it's a it's an interesting, I find it it's a much more delicate dance than I thought it was originally. I thought originally it's like one, two, yeah. three, done. Right. <laughs> we like me light the it's obvious. And, yeah. Yeah. And the reality is you realize, you know, everybody's a little different. Everybody, like some people react to the promised land better. Other people yeah. need a little bit more of the burning platform feeling to move. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and then other true. people are just, they're fine. They just need, like, just tell me what I need to do. Pascal, what book have you selected to read from? I picked something probably rather typical for my background, but <laughs> right. also probably something which is a little bit out of the extraordinary for yeah. a book you would pick typically pick. So I've recently read the uh, arguably best biography of a German electro pop band called Kraftwerk. And not just but German but also global in terms global. of their, their impact and their the the length of their shadow. Yes, exactly that's exactly the point. So Kraftwerk yeah. clearly uh, for those who aren't initiated into it, go on like whatever music <laughs> platform you use, like Google it or you know check it out. But they really defined an era. They really gave mm. us a whole different new way of thinking about music and sound and etc. And they're what the Germans call a Gesamtkunstwerk, meaning it's a <laughs> They see themselves as a as an as an, a whole package artwork. So it's not right. just the music; it's the way they perform, the way they present right. themselves, etc. And there's a book by a German guy called Uwe, Sch Uwe Schütter who wrote um, an English-speaking book called uh, "Kraftwerk: The Future Music from Germany." Nice. And the reason why I picked this is not because I want to talk about Kraftwerk, but <laughs> there is about a page and a half in here, so not quite your two pages. Yeah. But a page and a half in here, which I read. And then I read again, and I read again, and I was like, holy smokes, that's exactly what's happening in the world right now, and it's a good reminder, and that's the reason why I picked it. Oh, well, you, you couldn't get a better setup than that. You've, you, got a, you got me intrigued, you got everybody intrigued. So, um, Pascal, over to you. Let's, let's hear these pages. Perfect. So, let me give you a tiny bit of a setup. So, we're yeah. in the early part of the book, and we're talking about... Kraftwerks, we're just establishing essentially Kraftwerks' um, long-term influence on the world of music and how unique they 
were and still are and how much mm. influence they had. And the passage I'm going to read to you is about a music critic. So this is a citation essentially of a, of a work from a music critic who asked effectively the question, why hasn't there been a Kraftwerk after Kraftwerk? Right. So kind of like the, the, the age old question of like, you know, why like, did we have this like one moment in time where everything changed and then suddenly everything feels the same? Mark Fisher's question could thus be answered by pointing out that there is no need for an equivalent of Kraftwerk in today's musical landscape because Kraftwerk's sound is ubiquitous. But then, that isn't what his question was aiming at. What he wanted to know is, why aren't there any bands or artists around that make music which completely breaks with the rules, conventions and patterns that govern pop music as we know it? Music which, by sounding utterly different, would constitute proof that there exists a potential for the arrival of something genuinely new, socially, politically, or culturally. Instead, what is sold to us is just a repetition, variation, and regurgitation of the existing, a repackaged version of the past. The explanation is simple. There exists no music of the future today, because there is no longer any such thing as a future. The future, according to Fisher, has been canceled. The historical struggle for a better world has always been driven by the promise of better things to come. When the Beatles promised such a prospect in their 1967 song, Getting Better, they really meant it. The song caught the optimistic mood of the rebellious generation of the late 60s. By the end of the 20th century, these high hopes had waned. Today, when thinking about tomorrow, we see more threat than opportunity given the current climate of economic crisis, global warming, political demagogy, and the erosion of democratic values. How could we possibly imagine building a better future? That's, a, that's quite the gauntlet being laid down, Pascal. I know. What, what is so compelling about this for you? Extract the way your position on Kraftwerk. I mm. funnily had a conversation with a friend of mine whom I read that passage in preparation of our interview. And he's like, well, I don't know if that's true. And like, there's lots of good music, whatever. That's not my point. No. I think the point is, and I think this is why it is so important and why I reread this passage multiple times is, I believe Fisher is right. I think that we collectively have chosen to essentially cancel our future. If you look at the media landscape today, if you open up any newspaper, I guarantee mm. you the headlines on any newspaper front page is all negative. Yeah. And I wonder, and this is where, you know, like, this is not my Debbie Downer kind of <laughs> like session here, but I take this as a rallying cry. Yeah. Because for me, this really got me fired up about mm. thinking about, okay, so. If our leaders, polit whatever leader you want to look at, politicians, business, spiritual leaders, are not giving us a better future, a vision yeah. for a better future, then truly it is on us to create that. Because that's right. the only way we can create a better world we want to live in. Pascal, how does this sit with you being a heretic? Because you know, I feel like a heretic is all about how do you how do you overthrow the dominant philosophy? How do you resist the dominant philosophy? 
it feels like you're saying, look, the dominant philosophy has fallen. The rules are the rules are elusive now. It feels like a, a rallying cry is trying to is trying to reestablish something rather than resist something. I think you can turn that on its head and basically say, yeah. if we assume that the current way we're seeing the world in popular media or in like the predominant view is one which is unfortunately negative, right? Mm. It's like it's driven by fear and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Then aren't we supposed to be heretical and aren't we, isn't the, the call, the rallying call, the call to arms for us to say, let's overthrow this right. and replace it with a, a view of the future, which is positive. Right. which sees us solving our problems, which sees us loving our neighbors. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, that gets me fired up because yeah. I think, you know, I want to live in that world. <laughs> I really don't want to live in a world which is like, you know, doom and gloom. And again, for me, it's so interesting um, reading this passage in a book about music, you know, because again, for me, it's like, I look at this and I'm like, okay, so, how do we, how do we, in all kinds of our, in all aspects of our lives, how do we turn the message? Yeah. And, you know, like clearly your work equally as my work, as well as the work of many others is about that. It's like, how do we empower the individual to create That's a right. better future? A, uh, you know, what the futurists call a preferable future. Right. I like that. I haven't heard that phrase before, but I, I get that immediately. So... You know, coming back to where we were talking earlier around how how do individuals change? And you're like, you know what? I tried the rallying call, the inspirational talk. The, Come on, people! I see the light. There's the light. Follow me towards the light. Um, how do you? Where do you begin in um, a rallying cry for a more positive future, a preferable future? Knowing what you know about what does and doesn't work in terms of rallying people. I think you begin with, and, and quite frankly, you laid this out beautifully in your new book, just as Thank a quick you. plug here. <laughs> but, <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> but you begin with, for the individual, just laying out like, what is it I actually want to see in the future? What do mm. I, what do I desire? And here's the thing, right? Like, there is not a single individual I know who wants doom and gloom for themselves, right. Right. despite the fact that they might see doom and gloom everywhere and have probably resented to the fact that they believe doom and gloom is inevitable. Mm. But you, like, if you think about like, what do you actually want? You want a better future for your, if you have children, you want to have a better future for your children. You want to yeah. have a better future for yourself, et cetera. So getting to this, connecting the individual first to what is the future they actually want to see? I think that's an important part. The second part for me is, because sometimes this can become, I found it can become very overwhelming because mm. you can get into this world where you say, Oh yeah, I want to see a world where you know, like everybody's treated equally, and no child goes to bed, you know, starving or hungry, and and then you very quickly collapse into, oh my god, these problems are insurmountable. <laughs> right. right. How do right. I, as an individual, change any of these things? Right. Right. And I think the important thing for me is, and I learned this uh, myself through work with a coach. You know, someone telling, like, helping mm. me see this for myself is. I, th I think we need to figure out which of those particularities is important to us and which one do we want to focus on. Right. And then being okay saying like, you know, I only have so much energy. Mm -hmm. I can only give so much. 
but where do I want to funnel this? And right. being okay right. that other people will take off the other stuff. And if we do this as a collective, we're in a good shape. Yes. Who do you look to as role models in this space? I mean, who's doing, who's doing this well, do you think? One of the most shining examples, a dear friend of mine, a gentleman called Mark Moore. And uh, what Mark does, he uh, started and founded an organization called Mana Nutrition. And what they're doing is deceptively simple and it's absolutely incredible. Um, they found that Doctors Without Borders uh, decades ago, when looking at child malnutrition, so early child malnutrition, found that if you feed a uh, literally a starving child a concoction of peanut butter fortified with uh, infant formula, mm. which is, as you can imagine, high in calories, like peanut butter, like calories, yeah, high very calorie, dense. Fat, yeah, good stuff, yeah. Right, and then the infant formula gives you all the vitamins and the minerals you need. Um, and you give a child these little packets, um, and you give them like three packets, about 1,500 calories a day, the child's um, survival rate is north of 90%, wow. which is absolutely incredible. And the, the simple, you know, like the simplest thing, it's not like high-tech, compli complicated, like, you yeah. know, vaccine or something. It's just rather, it's peanut butter. So Mark started this organization um, and single-handedly with his company, which manufactures this, basically he said like, we're, we're going to manufacture this and we're going to apply modern day manufacturing technology to this. Um, and he brought down the price of these sachets down mm -hmm. to like, you know, 20% of what it was before. Um, and single-handedly as a, as a relatively small company um, is, you know, it's literally saving millions of lives every single year. Yeah. And I look at Mark and I'm like, you know, if, if, I love that story. if a person can just yeah. do this and say, I'm going to make a peanut butter manufacturing facility and I, you know, mm -hmm. help it, how am I, like, it just gives me incredible <laughs> amount of hope, right? Do you have any insight around how to navigate the, I'm going to call it the white savior complex? You know, this is um, somebody like me coming in and going, look, there's a poor part of the world of outside my neighborhood. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm moved to help them because I, I am a human and I have compassion. Let me come in and try and fix it for them. Yeah. Um, and I don't have an answer to this. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm wondering what you've learned or what you've noticed around how you how you show up, particularly if you've, you're used to be taking the position of leadership, which is kind of where my default goes to. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I think there's much to say about this. So one is, just generally speaking, I would say I'd rather have you help, even if the help is like somewhat misdirected, than not help. Right. <laughs> Let's start there. Yeah. Right. So I'd rather have you like actually do something rather than not. Mm. I think the second part really comes to like uh, the heart of your question of like, how do you actually do this, you know, better? I think it comes to a, a part around the humbleness a, and admitting to not knowing. And I think this opens up an interesting conversation around uh, overall leadership skills, quite frankly, yeah. in today's world. Because here's the interesting thing I find, and we find this a lot in, in my professional work is we are increasingly what we like to call called forward to lead into and in the unknown, right? As a leader today, you're living and leading into a world where you just don't know 
Like you don't know what the future will hold. Like there's so many variables at play, et cetera. And then the question becomes, how do you actually step up as a leader to lead into this and then inside of this unknown? And right. it's in many ways diametrically opposed to what we have been taught in school. Because <laughs> yeah. like unfortunately in school, and for good reasons, you get an A for knowing the answer, right? It's yeah. like, Michael, what is the, you know, one plus one? You're like two and That's you're like, right. yeah, you get a little star, you know? Yeah. The world we're living in isn't that anymore. So right. the world we're living in is... I'm still chasing the star. Yes, <laughs> And that's the exactly. problem, yeah, yeah. And the world we're living in is really about asking the right question mm. and then having the tools to actually suss out the answer, to like lean back and say, you know, let the people on the front lines that come up with this. And I give you a simple example. When I, um, uh, I used to work at Google.org, which is their philanthropic arm. And right. uh, we funded, uh, amongst many other organizations, an organization which had a really interesting kind of baseline approach to to help. So they went into regions like Africa and they said, instead of deploying capital, as in we're going to build wells or we're going to, you know, like whatever, build a school or something. They said, what we're going to do is we're going to give them the money, mm. right? Underst like believing that they will figure out like what to do with that money regardless. Yeah. And what's interesting, they kind of like set the baseline because that then becomes the baseline against every other uh, right. you know, in, invention. Intervention, yeah. And the question we regularly got asked about this company or this organization was, well, if you give the money to like a family, what keeps them from just buying a bunch of beer and like having a good time? Yeah. And you're like, quite frankly, Nothing. The reality, no, nothing. Yeah, yeah. But the nothing reality in theory, of it is in practice, reality, which yeah. is like they're trying to build a better life. That's exactly it. And yes, they will buy a couple of beers. And so be it. That's great. Let them buy a couple of beers. But they also mm. buy, say, for example, a little motorbike and then mm -hmm. open up like a, a transportation company where they drive people from village to village, right? Yeah. Because they want to have a better life. And they're not just like going to like blow it on beer, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think there's a piece in there which is, um, and, uh, Michael, you might have heard this in uh, the coaches training I received, um, which is coming from a, a place which used to be called the Coaches Training Institute. Yep. They have this idea where they they talk about the other person and they say, you hold the other person naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love this because it's this idea that you say, the other person is naturally creative. They can come up with any solution they need to come up with. Yeah, they're resourceful. They can figure out how to do it, and they're whole, as in they're not broken, yeah. right? So there's yeah. nothing I need to fix. And once you adapt this, I think as a as a life mm. style, as a mantra, your whole perspective shifts. Yeah, I love that. Um, I did my training with CTI twenty years ago as well, so I I know that phrase. I've sat in the room with that. I suspect that if we ever end up in the same country and the same city and the same bar together, we'll spend hours <laughs> ch chatting about this. But for now, um, let me ask a final question, which is this. What what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? <laughs> that's always the that's always the trick question. I always hate that question because it's <laughs> like it puts the onus on me to come up with a really good question right now. One of your replies can be, we've said all that needs to be said. And you can drop a mic and walk off. That is a beautiful but, yeah. response. <laughs> no, I just want uh, to, let me just point one thing out. Because I yeah. believe that the, the two pages I brought to you, yeah. when you read them and take them at face value, they can sound incredibly depressing. Sure. And I just want to make sure that people understand that I take this and I invite people to take these things 
regardless what it is, like my two pages or whatever you like read, encounter, see, and see it as a as a yin to a yang, like mm. as a source of energy to figure out, okay, if that's happening, if that's like the negative energy here, what is the positive energy I can bring to counter this out? Right. And for me, that's like, at least for my life, is always this like, this driving force for me to say, okay, so I see this happening. I see the suffering happening yeah. or the problems. How can we fix them? Like it gives me energy to like use the, use what you perceive as negative energy just as energy and turn it into something positive. Let me underline Pascal's optimistic finish by mentioning one of my favorite books, Kevin Kelly's The Inevitable. The book points to 12 technological trends that Kelly says will shape our future. And one of them is Remix. I've actually just been reading it because it really challenges what format content comes in. And I'm trying to reimagine what books might be in the future. Now, Kelly is definitely a future optimist. And he says we'll keep evolving and growing and solving problems by our ability to remix what's there. Now, that might be entertainment, it might be music. And if you want an aside, you can Google Daft Punk plus Eddie Jones plus More Spell on You, and you can see where that fantastic, iconic riff from One More Time comes from. It's, it's a piece of magic. But remix might also mean, for instance, combining peanut butter and infant formula to save lives. I definitely feel pessimistic at times about what we're doing with our world. But I'm going to keep looking for the ways we figure stuff out, the ways we take on our worthy goals, the ways we mix up and find creative solutions. Two more interviews for you if you enjoyed this one. I'd point to Seth Levine, and that interview is called How to Build Something. Seth is a tech venture capitalist. And then Sarah Stein Greenberg, How to Love the Unknown. She's part of the D School at Stanford. Um, so a really interesting conversation about what does it take to design a better world. And if you want to contact Pascal, well, apparently, and this is what Pascal told me, there are only two people named Pascal Finette in the world, and now the Pascal isn't really on the internet. So a Google will take you a long way. Uh, Finette is F-I-N-E-T-T-E. Um, I'd encourage you to sign up for his news out of The Heretic. I thoroughly enjoy that. Um, and, you know, as a bonus, we'll put a link to a classic Kraftwerk song in the liner notes as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for passing the interview on. It, we grow best by word of mouth. So if you have a chance to go, yep, this person should listen to this interview, that helps a lot. Thank you for giving me the love you've given me on reviews, some stars or some nice words. If you haven't done that yet, a simple, powerful thing for me. Um, a real way of helping the algorithm say this is a good podcast is to, to give us a quick review. And I think that's it. So let me just finish by saying you're awesome and you're doing great.